We're incredibly fortunate to have you on the podcast. My name is Bob Rourke. I'm with Business Leaders Podcast. I have my co-host today, Miranda Vieira. She's with Denver Legal Marketing. And we have David Sessman of Sessman Law. So, David, tell us a little bit about your business and who you serve. As a trial lawyer, you have to really begin to focus your practice. Most of my practice is in the realm of employment and employee benefits litigation. I add employment law, fairly straightforward. Age discrimination, gender discrimination, breach of employment contract, misappropriation and trade secrets cases, matters like that. I expand that to employee benefits because I have a fairly strong background in ERISA. That is retirement benefits, health and welfare benefits, it's of that nature. So it's really, I consider myself more of an HR attorney because I really cover the gamut. I have always carefully maintained a practice where I represent both management and individuals. I feel like that gives me a much more balanced perspective and allows me to counsel whoever it may be, whether it's a C-suite executive leaving a company or management looking at how do we deal with the situation. One of our employees just walked out with some trade secrets. I can counsel them a little bit better because I understand the arguments that both sides will make. You're for your practice. What's your predominant geographic focus? For the most part, it's Colorado. I am licensed in Colorado. I don't hold a license to practice law anywhere else. That being said, I have handled matters all over the United States. It is sometimes you get the call that says, we need you to hire you in this case. And it involves, it could be court appearances in New Orleans. It could be in Dallas. It depends. But the predominant focus for me is really localized. I try to stay very involved in the Colorado community. And I really try to concentrate my practice here because it's home and it's what I know best. For the folks, they don't know you and they don't know how long you've been in the law field. Tell us a little bit about what led you to be an attorney and a little bit of your background in law here in Colorado. Sure. Good question. I was out of undergraduate. I had an undergraduate degree in finance and some management. I went into sales. And I set records for the company that I was working for the first couple of years and got moved into a basic level of sales management. And then I had some creative ideas and I went to senior management and said, you know, out in the field, if you could package this with that, it would really help us here and we could sell more product. And the response I got back from management was, your job is to produce and sell. That's marketing. You're in sales. You're not in marketing. And I decided at that point, I really wanted to use my mind a little more in business. And so I always knew I'd return to school. I thought I'd probably get an MBA, but I decided, you know what? As a lawyer, I'll really be able to, to use my mind a lot. And that challenge would exist in law. And so I went to law school. Coming out of law school, I was 100% convinced I would be a business lawyer, but I wanted to start where the challenge was. And, and I could always use my business background and become a business lawyer, but the challenge was going to be becoming a trial attorney. And so I decided that's where I started my career. 34 years later, I'm still doing it. We're all subject to the TV attorney shows and whatever goes on with those things. But for you, when you know you're going to trial, what do you do to prepare mentally? Is there a, a typical organized process or steps that you do to lend confidence for when you arrive? There is. You have to become very, very myopic and focus just on 
the facts and law surrounding the case you're about to go to trial on. So the first thing I do is I apologize to my wife and I apologize to anybody who's going to be around me for the next few weeks because I, I know I'll, I will become unbearable. It's just the reality. You have to have the myopic focus. And so you're just not necessarily a pleasant person to go to a ball game with or, or to have a casual conversation with. And the reason is, again, you have to really focus on what it is you are doing. You have to become a master of every fact in that case for trial. Because when a judge says to you, Mr. Sesserman, what about such and such? You need to be able to respond on the spot. Or if you need a document, you need to be able to pull it out and used to be pulled out of a box and give it to the witness. Now it's display it typically on a screen of some sort. But you have to have access to that document. You have to know where it is. You have to know what it says. You have to know what a witness says it said in a deposition. Or you waive the right to ever bring that up again. And so you have to have mastery and focus. Miranda, you and I were talking before we started this episode about some of the percentage issues that are facing. Yeah. Employment and kind of employment matters are all over the news in Colorado and beyond in 2019. I pulled a statistic this morning I thought was super interesting as a business owner and then also because I work with business lawyers. They say that small and medium-sized businesses face a 12% chance of an employment claim. What do you think about that? Is that accurate? Is it more? Is it less than what you've seen? I'm actually surprised that the number is only 12%. In my experience, virtually every employer faces that kind of a claim down the road because in the press, there are lots of employment claims. You can't help but get online and read the news and not see some sort of an employment claim out there. And so as that education is out there in the workforce, people understand that, hey, I just lost my job or I think I'm in trouble. I'm going to make a claim and maybe I'll get some money for it. So I'm actually surprised it's that low. That's interesting. I was surprised. I thought it was kind of high, but I think you're right. You see it from a completely different perspective, being that you see this from both sides, the business side and also the employee side. So a thought, if I'm a Colorado employer, what are kind of top maybe three mistakes that you're seeing right now with regard to lawsuits of any sort regarding unemployment? The first one is failure to communicate. The way that you can avoid most certainly employment lawsuits as management, is to be transparent. When an employee doesn't do his or her job to your expectations, it's important that you communicate your expectations to that individual and not wait until a year later for the annual review where you then say, oh, the employee was doing a decent job this year and you don't even criticize. And that's the second thing. So one is communicate. The second one is be honest and candid in those communications. Those would really be the top two. I guess the third would be educate yourself on the law. Understand the rights you as a business owner have and the rights that your employees or contractors have. I was thinking as you were talking about it, so you communicate with the employee. So how do you prove that you've actually had the conversation or do you need to take and do written communication records? It's an excellent question. Unfortunately, I think you do need to document what you've done because if you don't, then it becomes the classic he said, she said. And so it's always a good practice to even internally document, just like a physician 
when a physician is performing a procedure, the physician is typically engaging in dialogue throughout the procedure because it's being recorded and documented what it is she did as the physician in that case. And as a business owner, there's no downside whatsoever to having some level of documentation of who and what met. Second thing is that manager, take advantage of the fact that you have multiple individuals on the management side. When there is a critical meeting with an employee, have at least two people there. So there's less question about what was said and what was communicated. Having that second individual can be good in terms of, did I communicate this correctly? But also it stops, again, the classic, you said that, no, I didn't situation. As you think about the components of the value of a business, part of it's policies and procedures. And I would presume that job descriptions would fall in there somewhere. So I'm a fast-growing company, and I can't hardly get people on board fast enough. Colorado's economy is pretty good. And what should that business owner be thinking about as they're onboarding these people to try to take and streamline or alleviate this issue? Again, a good question. Several things. What is it you want that person to do? What is that person's job? You mentioned a job description. In employment law, a job description is becoming more and more critical arguably mandatory at this point. If an employee has to be able to lift 10 pounds repetitively to perform his or her job, if it's in the job description, that's going to help when the employee can't perform the essential function of the job, which is to repetitively lift. Surprisingly, again, in the gig economy where people work at home all the time, if it's important that an individual be present in the office from eight to five or whatever the hours are, good idea to put that in the job description. Surprisingly, I've seen a few situations where there's a debate about whether showing up to work is an essential function of a job. And so that's important. I guess finally related to that is what about the hours? Is somebody exempt or non-exempt? What are the expectations that are on them? What is exempt, non-exempt? Sure. Fair Labor Standards Act is the law I'm referring to. There's state equivalents in almost every state. But it's the idea of Are you salaried, properly salaried, and exempt from overtime, or are you paid by the hour? And where that comes up is somebody is paid hourly, but they have access to emails on their cell phone, and she is expected to check her emails at night. She's working when she's checking those emails, but she's not being compensated for that. That can become a huge liability down the road when she terminates her relationship with the company and says, I wasn't paid for all the hours I worked. And again, communicate expectations and have certain policies in place. One of the things that we talked about before, I think that makes your practice perhaps unique is that you're on both sides between the employee and the employer. And I think for some folks, they may take umbrage at the fact that you're on one side or the other only. So for you, how do you see that both sides exposure helping business owner because of your exposure? The reason I maintain what I call a balanced practice is that it gives me an opportunity to understand both sides of the argument, both sides of the equation. So I'm able to meet with a business owner and talk about, well, here are the arguments that I would make if I was on the plaintiff side of this, if I was representing your employee. And so these are things you need to consider. And I bring credibility to that conversation because I've been on that side. And it's not just something that they go, well, you don't know what you're talking about. 
that's why that's a large part of why I maintain a balanced practice. I think it's a really good distinction. It's all like sell side by side. So you're on sell side by side, both. And I think you just kind of brought up a unique example of that when you were talking about someone being on their email at night after work is that is that work. And you see it from both sides. You see it from the executive side who's being forced to not forced or asked to answer emails at 9 p.m. And then you also see it from the business owner's side of, was that a requirement of the job? So I think seeing both sides of the coin there is kind of an interesting perspective on Colorado employment law. I'm seeing a ton in the news with regard to discrimination. I mean, just in Colorado and Denver, the hashtag me too kind of sexual harassment, all kinds of issues are rife for lawsuits. Can you shed any light on kind of avoiding that? What to do? I look at things proactively when it comes to legal services. I think oftentimes people don't hire attorneys in time and then they face a lawsuit or a claim or something like that. And I think that having a lawyer look over your employment agreement before you sign it or being a business owner and drafting, having your lawyer draft your contracts, not your assistant. I think all of these things proactively help your business in the long run. So with regard to kind of discrimination lawsuits in Colorado, anything to add on how to prevent that if you possibly can? You raise a lot of topics, but let me try to kind of your last question. What I'm about to say is not really radical or new, but it is important that to avoid any sort of potential claims, whether it is especially discrimination claims, whether it's age discrimination whether it's gender or racial discrimination or whether it is now Me Too, which obviously is a form of really gender harassment that you see in the news a lot. As management, again, you need to treat employees fairly, to give employees equal opportunities, to not discriminate, which is the same thing I would have told you 10 years ago. So there's nothing new there, but there is a heightened sensitivity to everything. The danger I've seen with me too, in particular, is where Me Too is a bit different than, let's just say, your traditional gender discrimination case is the ability to reach back many years to make a claim. In employment law, and I don't want to get into real specifics necessarily, but it's become very clear that if you have a policy in place as management that says, employee, if you believe you are being treated improperly or unfairly, you must make a claim in a timely fashion and you must inform management so that we as management are aware of this situation and have an opportunity to react. And if you don't do so in a timely fashion, you are going to be barred from ever making that claim. What Me Too has expanded it to is the ability to say, eight years ago, I believe that my supervisor acted inappropriately. And I should, not that I'm looking, I, the victim, I'm looking to claim any damages necessarily, but there is a situation that occurred eight years ago and this person should pay for it now. From an overall perspective, I agree with that. You shouldn't be able to get away with sexual harassment from eight years ago. However, it's very difficult for a manager to defend himself or herself from that kind of a claim. What I have seen and what, what bothers me, and me too in particular, is I have seen a lot of, in particular, male managers that 
are really reluctant to find themselves alone with a female subordinate working one-on-one because they're afraid that five years down the road, she may decide to leave for whatever reason, and she's going to claim that I inappropriately propositioned her or something of that nature. That may impact my relationship with my significant other at that point. That may torpedo my career, even though it may very well be false. And so I'm just going to avoid that situation. So I am not going to be alone with women. That's unacceptable because that means that in that situation, a male manager based upon gender is not going to mentor an absolutely 100% capable woman just because of her gender. So with that being said, I'm this male supervisor. I have an up and coming young employee that happens to be male or female, either way. And I'm reluctant. So what can you do to check and bring that employee along and still manage to protect the firm that you work for? Excellent question. I think if you were the male in that situation, you absolutely must give your female subordinate the opportunities, but be very, very aware of situations you put yourself in. For instance, if you're on a business trip, perhaps you don't want to stay in adjoining hotel rooms and go out drinking until two o'clock in the morning. Yeah, that's kind of like the low IQ solution. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it really is. It is. On the day-to-day higher IQ, it's difficult because in order to give traditional mentorship is one-on-one relationship, one-on-one support, and that has to be given there. But you've got to watch your actions. In this case, the senior male, you can't be touchy-feely. If you naturally like to rub someone's shoulders, as has been in the news lately, don't. Just don't do it. On the flip side, if you are the subordinate and you feel like you're not getting mentored, bring it up in a non-adversarial fashion. You don't have to say, I think I'm being discriminated against. I'm going to bring a charge of discrimination against you because you're not giving me an opportunity. But bring it up in a situation where you say, I feel like I'm not being given opportunities. Is there something wrong with my performance? Because again, maybe it's subconscious, but the manager may be avoiding a situation without thinking about it. Are there kind of protocols or maybe maybe a proactive lecture that a law firm like yours can provide that can help Colorado businesses to tackle this? There is. But most of that lecture, to really simplify it down to 20 seconds, is going to boil down to communicate. Just communicate expectations and the working relationship. Keep an active dialogue. Work hard to create that active dialogue. Lots of companies don't do that. They just avoid, again, if someone is not performing, the easiest thing to do is simply avoid that person. As an attorney, as a former managing partner of a long, of a large law firm, I always made it a policy if I had a terminated and associate attorney's employment that I would bring that individual's manager into the meeting because that individual needed to see what the deer in the headlights look was because I would receive it. Because typically the junior person would say, I didn't know it wasn't acceptable. I didn't know you had a problem with my work. To which the supervising attorney might say, well, didn't it occur to you the fact that I haven't given you an assignment in six months? Communicate. Communicate timely. You know, for the business owner, this good. I'm really tightening up my company. There's going to be some period of time I'm going to transition my company. And I don't know where I stand on de-risking based on the areas that you cover. 
Do you stress test or go and do a review or look at company documents pre-sale to try to help that business owner? Yes. It's certainly a service that I offer. It's not one, quite frankly, I'm called upon that often to do because uh, it's not something that a lot of business owners want to deal with pre-sale. They just want to say, here are my revenues. Here are the employees I have. Do you want to keep them? Do you not? What about on the other side? What does the buyer think, though? Is the buyer starting to recognize this? My sense is yes. My sense is more and more buyers are beginning to recognize some of that, especially when it comes to, and I don't want to diverge too much, but when it comes to intellectual property. Great segue. That's what I wanted to talk okay. about anyways. Yeah. Oh, Perfect. But I think a lot of companies, a lot of their value is tied up in IP. And so it does become very important as an acquiring company to say, okay, what kind of intellectual property is key to the company that I am about to buy and how is it protected? And so you can bring in someone like me to say, okay, what kind of documented protections are in place? Are we relying just on the Uniform Trade Secrets Act to say employees shall not take information that is considered to be confidential? Or has it been documented? If it's documented, is it narrowly focused and therefore much more enforceable in the eyes of a judge who may say, I don't want to preclude someone from working down the road? So, yes, it is very important. I think about the company that's got a distributed workforce, got contractors around. And let's say I'm a a software company and I have some programmers on the East and West Coast. And then I also have some in a foreign country. And I've got all my stuff built and ready to go. And how do you take and start to advise a company on protecting intellectual property when you have contractors scattered from one end of the planet to another? Good question. You need to start with what documentation do you have, get into a discussion about what documentation should be in place, take a look at, start with the uniform laws. There are uniform laws such as the Uniform Trade Secrets Act. In Colorado, we call our version the Colorado Uniform Trade Secrets Act. On a federal level, there is the Defend Trade Secrets Act that went into effect a few years ago. So something like IP is really specifically recognized by both state and federal laws. And so it's important to take a look at what is protectable, what kind of restrictions are going to be honored. Give you an example. In California, this is a very generalized statement. But it is very difficult for a company to restrict an individual from earning a living under the guise of a restrictive covenant, more commonly agreement, more commonly known as a covenant not to compete. Versus there are other states that are much more management focused, and it is much easier to put in place a very almost punitive restriction on employees. And that leads to the discussion of what do you really need as a company? I see lots and lots of litigation over restrictive covenant agreements where typically someone has been hired by a company, let's say that she is in sales, she's been very successful, and management has made the decision that she no longer needs to be part of the company. Assuming there's nothing illegal about that decision, it's because of her gender or something like that, that's a fair and rational business decision. But then management takes the next step and says, but... While she's not good enough for us, we want to enforce the agreement that says she can't work in the industry for two years. That creates litigation. And a two-year agreement is something that somebody may have to fight over because they have to put food on the table versus a narrowly drawn 
agreement that says, look, for six months, you're not going to touch the top six companies that you work with for the previous six months, probably not going to end up in a lawsuit over that. Sounds like it boils again down to documentation and communication, seeing the theme here. It's true. A ton of people are kind of looking outside the box when it comes to employment in the Denver metro area and especially in Boulder, where we have these different kind of gig economy freelance hotspots. Can you expand at all on the benefits of hiring someone that has a little bit more freedom in their position? I can. And it's you've hit on one of the real hot button issues in employment law right now. And that is how do you deal with the gig economy, the independent contractors versus an employee? Clearly, a lot of individuals who provide services want to be considered independent contractors. They want the ability to work for Bob one day, for Miranda the next, doing the same thing. But they get involved working for Miranda. Miranda's got a lot of really good work that she keeps feeding them. And over the course of two years, she, there's been enough work for Miranda. So they're just working for Miranda because that's as, as hard as they want to work or they're happy with the challenging work. But Miranda's treated them as a independent contractor. From Miranda's perspective, the company's perspective, from the individual's perspective, everyone is very happy. Unless, for some reason, the individual didn't carry health insurance, has a need for health insurance, and then says, wait a minute, I should have gotten that from my employer because I think I was really an employee, or I should have gotten pension benefits or something else. You didn't give that to me. So now I'm going to sue you, especially after the relationship is terminated. The government is very clear on the government's position on that. And the government wants to be parental and to find the employment relationship. The government wants to collect unemployment insurance compensation, which it can do for employees, but not for independent contractors. The government wants to make sure that individuals are protected against themselves. And so that when they are providing services, they are building up retirement benefits. They are receiving health insurance. And so there's a, a real healthy or unhealthy tension there. Where that's going to come down, I don't know right now. It is certainly in the ride-sharing services, in particular in California. California has said, these individuals are employees. The requirement to drive a ride-share car is you must have a car that is no older than 10 years old, that it must be in good operating condition, that you must keep it clean, that you must greet a ride with a friendly smile. Now it sounds like management is controlling the terms and conditions of the working relationship and that management is permitting an individual to suffer, is the term, working for a company. I think you're going to see in the next couple of years an awful lot of case law as well as statutory changes at a legislative level come out to deal with the gig economy. Because again, clearly the companies, the individuals providing services want that kind of freedom. Government is very, very lax to allow that kind of freedom. There are a number of negatives, but it's more we seem to be headed. You're putting a hat on backwards. So I'm the freelancer. Right. And I'm going like, what do I need to be aware of when I take and sign up on a freelance contract with a company? You need to really think about, are there any restrictions that the company is trying to place on you? Give you an example. We just talked about a few minutes ago, restrictive covenant agreements, protecting intellectual property. And the way that intellectual property is 
among other things, is typically protected is some level of restricted covenant. I am going to give you my secret formula. You're going to use it while you work for me. And you agree that in order to protect that for X period of time, six months, a year, following the time our business relationship ends, that you are not going to compete with me. That's a typical intellectual property protection. But if you're an independent contractor, you can't have an agreement like that. You may be able to, but it's very difficult to enforce against an independent contractor because one of the tests of the independent contractor is providing the exact same services to competitors. So a lot of so-called freelancers, especially in the arts, especially creatives, the writers, want to be contracted to write a column for a publication and write a column for another publication. They want to take their column from point A to point B. And if you start to restrict that, now you sound more and more like an employee. I'm now a newly graduated college kid with a degree and no experience and go, I'm going to have to go through the intern Python. What advice do you offer to the intern and employer about working with interns? That was a common practice up until about three or four years ago that kids coming out of college were told, hey, why don't you come work side by side with our employees? We'll bring you in as a newly minted college graduate as an intern for three months. And we're going to bring in 18 interns. And if you're one of those 18, we're hoping to hire maybe six. So why don't you come work for us for free for three months and we'll see who we want to hire. That was very common. There is no question in today that today that is not legal. If someone is being classified as an intern, that individual better be an intern. And by that, there are a number of different tests, but the major one is who's benefiting. If the individual from an educational perspective is the person who is benefiting, the party that's benefiting, then maybe you've got a strong argument that the person is an intern. For instance, she's a senior in college. She wants experience in an ad agency. She's getting college credit for working at the ad agency. The ad agency is spending more time training her than she is really providing services. Good chance that person's an intern versus same individual. She's just graduated college. She's working on creative copy for a company for their customers and clients probably ought to be paid as an employee. So for the business owner, how do you take and protect, provide to make sure, you know, you go like, I really want to give back. My kids went through intern hell as well. Okay. If, if for, I don't know what else to call it. Right. In my industry as well, it's challenging to have an intern on board. And what do you do as an employer to make sure, you know, you're trying to give back, but you're trying to cover yourself too. Bring somebody on as a part-time employee, pay the person, make no, this is a temporary assignment. Simplify. Right. I'm going to bring you in. It's up to a three-month assignment. I'm not guaranteeing that if, if you don't show up at work that I'm going to keep paying you, but this is what I'm going to pay you. I don't know that this is long-term or not. It may morph into something else, but here's what I can offer you right now. We're going to shift gears. Miranda yeah. is going to cover some of the sexual harassment areas. Okay. So just proactive advice coming from the perspective of a Colorado civil trial lawyer. What are some speed bumps, some ga ways to kind of rein it in and proactively protect yourself or your business from any sort of kind of sexual? I know in Colorado, especially sexual harassment lawsuits are on the rise. Few, I know we're not giving any legal advice here, but just off the top of your head, easy things that, that someone can do next week 
for sure call a lawyer. <laughs> for sure call you. But sure. any ideas to share on that? From which perspective? You know what? I like from both because I think that your perspective is unique because you do see it from the employer and the employee side. So let's start with the C-suite executive. Are there any things that I can do when I'm in a room with just with a bunch of male executives or something like that, the conversation goes awry? Should I be doing anything to protect myself? Should I document it? First thing you got to do is if you are in a position where you're feeling uncomfortable because of the banter, the treatment, the joking, whatever may be going on, say you're uncomfortable. Okay. Ask others to stop. Say, this makes me uncomfortable. Can we please change the topic? And yes, to protect yourself, at least internally document that request. doesn't hurt to take a note and write it down somewhere, whether it's on your phone or somewhere else, and say, I asked so-and-so to stop. Because if it doesn't stop, then now you're into repeated conduct and you need to be able to document that repeated conduct. And so you, when you go to HR, when you go to, again, you said a C-suite executive, when you go to the CEO, you really do have to confront them and say, this, I've asked for this to be stopped and this is incorrect. This now needs to stop. And then if it doesn't, that's when you have to reach out to a lawyer. Yeah. I think that, you know, just being a professional, being in the legal community for 21 years, pretty hard to say out loud at this point. You started early. I did. I was like five. We have kind of a laid back culture in Denver in all different industries. And I think sometimes joking can get out of hand. I think that sometimes situations get a little, they can toe a line, but I think it is important, even if you can't stop the conversation, if you aren't brave enough, because sometimes these things are really uncomfortable to write it down. I think that advice coming from a Colorado employment lawyer that sees this all the time is key from the employer right. perspective. Anything that they can do is that training for sure. Looking at employment manuals, do you consider that to be kind of a once a year thing? Is it once a month thing? How often they sh- should they be looking at these key documents? Well, a couple different questions. Let's start with the last, something like an employment manual. An employment manual should be a living, breathing document that certainly ought to be reviewed periodically. That being said, when a client comes to me and says, we want an employment manual, my first question is, why? Why do you want to document your policies, your procedures? Why do you want to create restrictions on your ability to manage your employees through an employment contract? For instance, the classic is progressive discipline. Why do you want to put in a progressive discipline policy that your employees otherwise have no right to. And so you need to look at, if you want an employment manual, what do you need? You talked earlier about job descriptions. Probably a good place for those or reference that they're there. Basic policies, sexual harassment. We do not tolerate sexual harassment. But be very careful there because a lot of companies have adopted a zero tolerance policy. And a zero tolerance policy applies to everybody. So when the zero tolerance policy says if you sexual harassment includes forwarding sexually suggestive emails, that's got to apply to everybody. So that means, yes, you can fire the gender because he was forwarding an inappropriate email. But if it's the EVP who does that, you've got to treat the EVP the same way. So you get into discussions about maybe you want to say it's going to be dealt with, but it's not a zero tolerance. So that there's an opportunity to communicate to somebody that this is not acceptable behavior. You do it again, you're out. As opposed to zero tolerance says, you're out right now. 
yes, it should be looked at. It should be live. Something like, again, we prohibit discrimination. That's not going to change. The definition of what discrimination is, that does morph over time. We talked a little bit about Me Too. That is something that we're seeing, again, in the news this morning. One of the potential presidential candidates is a bit of a touchy-feely person who has been informed or accused, if you want to say it, in the last several days that his touching of women, rubbing the shoulder, a kiss from a politician on a head, made somebody uncomfortable, a number of people uncomfortable. No allegation of sexual misconduct, but placing them in an uncomfortable position. That was acceptable at one point. That's what politicians did. Politicians kissed babies, hugged people, shook hands, gave the old you know kiss on the cheeks. That's changing. Today, not really a good thing you want to be doing. Not something I would recommend to anybody, including coworkers. You got to think twice. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. If you see someone, especially in management, who is a hugger and likes to hug coworkers as an HR executive, as senior management, you may want to counsel that person because that's a potential liability today. You know, a couple of things I was thinking about is for the folks that are listening, obviously, this is a general conversation, not to be right. construed as legal advice. Sure. Two, for the folks who are going like, wow, I think I need to reach out. How do they find you? How do they find me? The easiest way to find me these days, www.sesserman.law. And that's S-E-S-E-R-M-A-N? Uh, correct. Okay. And that's my website. That gives you my bio. That tells you a little bit about me, my practice, what I've done, my background. That's the easiest way, my phone number. Someone can send me an email, dsesserman at sesserman.law, or call me, main number 303-900-2406. But the easiest way really is this thing is we go to the website, take a look at it. That has all of my contact information. You can send me an email from there. Yeah, and Miranda said it before, I think. This is the biggest mistake the listener can make is if you have a question, if you have a concern, call. Don't sit there and stew on it until you don't have an option to call. No question. In thinking about inside of a company's, I have a large population of employees and I have some employees that have a specific skill set and I have a faster moving employee that develops that same skill set, but because they're, you know, they move at a different pace, but their compensation level is different. From an employer standpoint, how do you make sure you're not discriminating against an employee based on your pay scale? And we see the pay gap between men and women. And it's an ongoing topic. Very good question. The oversimplified answer is to independently, if not blindly, review your employees and their compensation and their job opportunities. It's not all compensation, but there's actually opportunities for promotion and advancement. So the more you can do that from an objective, blind basis. What does that mean, that blind? You look at someone's job performance as management. You don't know the name of the individual, especially if you have a large workforce. You don't know the gender. You don't know the age of the person. You just take a look at that person's historical performance. Where does that individual fit in in terms of compensation, benefits, opportunities? Related to that, from an HR perspective, you have to run just the opposite analysis, which is when you do see who is getting terminated for poor performance, who is ending up on performance improvement plans, who is being given job opportunities and promotions. Now you need to associate various categories, gender, age, national origin, 
disability with those individuals deceased. Statistically speaking, is there discrimination here? I don't want to say statistics don't lie or statistics do lie, but statistics certainly reveal an awful lot of information. And clearly, in an employment discrimination lawsuit, statistics can, standing alone, prove discrimination. Suggests a direction, doesn't it? It does. As the population ages, there's more and more baby boomers staying in. Not you and I, of course, but as the baby boomers stay in the workforce, as a business owner, what types of things are you starting to see as it relates to the baby boomer side? I'm seeing baby boomers, as you just mentioned, staying in the workforce longer, not retiring at age 60, 65, stretching into 70 and beyond. Also, situations where aging individuals are not as productive as they used to be, whether it's from a mental or a physical ailment. And if they work for a traditional company that gives you raises year after year, then the less productive individual becomes a a highly compensated individual. And so when there is a cutback, management says, we're overpaying. How do we deal with that? And the answer is, it's very dangerous. Carefully. Yeah. You really have to look at it very carefully, which is why, for instance, a lot of companies have said, for instance, as a lawyer, you have paralegals. We're going to pay paralegals between X and Y. That's the pay scale. So if a longer service paralegal hits Y, then he or she may not be receiving pay raises because that is the upper side of the pay grade and it becomes bonuses. Now, you may lose that individual, but you have to think about that instead of just pay raise year after year after year, we're all some by default. If you've been there since you were 25 and you're now 55, you have 30 years of pay raises. One kind of unrelated issue I wanted to just touch on here. So some of the listeners might have a general counsel. They might be big enough to have in-house counsel for their company. Do you ever work with an in-house counsel just on the employment side or on the HR issues that they face? Yes. I feel like it's impossible to know everything. (laughs) How would you augment what they're doing? It depends on the skill and knowledge set of the GC. A lot of general counsel, and this is a very generalized statement, but come out of the business side. And so their expertise is business law, perhaps securities, the business transactions. And so it would not be unusual for somebody in that case to say, hey, David, you practice a lot of employment law. You spend time keeping abreast of what's going on. So I'd like to be able to counsel with you more, call you up occasionally and say, hey, what do we do here? Interesting, most of those kinds of relationships that I've developed over the years end up being developed because the client got sued. And so the initial introduction with the client or the general counsel is as outside counsel where you're in a fairly intense lawsuit situation. But then the person likes my approach, likes the fact that I take the, there is, I told you earlier, I was a trial lawyer, but we're also attorneys and counselors at law. I take the counseling part very seriously. I pride myself that I spend a lot of time helping business owners in particular make decisions and weigh the options. I'm not going to make the decision for them, but I can certainly counsel and guide them in terms of what are the risks of, from an employment perspective, of going in this direction, whether it's what kind of, we want to have restrictive covenant agreements. Can you educate us on that? We want to protect IP. So we just want to have everybody sign the same agreement, including the janitor and the CEO. As we look at there's a number of organizations that rely heavily on volunteers, <laughs> you know, and God love them. 
And they go in and they work away and so on. As an organization that has a large group of volunteers, what types of things should I be thinking about as it relates to those folks? Well, it depends on the size of the organization. There's going to be a lot of factors. But in general, you don't want volunteers becoming employees, unpaid labor. That won't hold up if and when that's challenged in court. And the reason I said the size matters is if you have a huge several hundred employee nonprofit and you have volunteers who occasionally pitch in with their services, that's okay. You can have someone who's on the board, who's an accountant, help out with some accounting, maybe do some management oversight because that individual has the skill. But if that individual now becomes 30 hours a week of volunteer doing bookkeeping, probably cross the line and that individual really ought to be paid for his or her services. Now, if you have a six-person nonprofit, then the heavy lifting, sometimes there is, again, the accounting skill set, then perhaps the basic bookkeeping is done by somebody who's on the board and says, you know, look, I can do this. This is pretty easy. This is what I do for a living. I'll, I'll help out a little bit. You know, we've got revenues of $100,000 in this nonprofit. And it comes from eight sources. So, but you have to be careful. Most employment laws do apply to nonprofits as well. I'm shifting gears a little bit. I'm uh, acquiring a business. I'm really focused on making sure documentation, policy, procedures, and all this stuff. And I reach out to you and says, I'd like to take in, have you look through and from best in class, worst in class, or average, what types of things would you consider doing or do you get that request periodically? Get the request periodically, somewhat rarely. But what the first thing you want to do is learn the business, learn what the goal is of the company. I have a lot of lawsuits I have handled in the last, oh, geez, dozen years where business owners, management decided they didn't want to hire a lawyer early on. And so they went on the internet, they found some sort of a form, said, yeah, this seems to do what it, what I want. And I want an intellectual property agreement. This is entitled intellectual property agreement. So I'm just going to implement that. And good for me, I just saved a whole bunch of lawyer fees. No, as an attorney, it's very important that I get to know my client a little bit and understand what my client's goals are so that we can create documents that are more enforceable, but they absolutely meet the business needs of the business, whether it's the business that exists now or if it's you and you're about to acquire a business. We need to look at what are your goals, what needs to be protected, what is in place, and do we need to change those? Or is there a big risk and you change your offer? Correct. Absolutely. It's just like finding out that you're about to buy a company and there's a lawsuit out there. Eh, You might want to take a reserve against that lawsuit and learn a little bit about it. Corinda? Leo, that's all I have. Yeah. We've been wearing you out. So probably the last thing I would think about. So I'm a company. I'm trying to make a choice between a board or an advisory committee. What types of advice might you or things that you'd be concerned about if I was trying to choose between an advisory group versus a board. Define your term advisory group and board because a lot of people use those interchangeably. Probably the best way that you could think that it actually fulfilled an advisory role as opposed to a board. Okay. Advisory role, you're going to have less exposure. It's a bit like the volunteer on a board. Mm-hmm. You're not actually there on the board. You are dealing with a fairly high level and you keep it at that high level. Board, now you have fiduciary and other direct responsibilities. You have direct management oversight. If you are a board member on a corporation, 
You may be on the compensation committee. That means you have responsibility for compensation. You may be on the IP or technology committee. Again, learn your role. Learn the expectations. I know I've said this a few times, but it is really critical in any business aspect, whether it's employment or otherwise, that there is transparency and there's communication, And but you understand what your role and expectations are. And if you're the position of being the delegator, you make sure that anybody who is being delegated to understands your expectations. David, I tell you, we've sat here in, do you feel like you've been grilled? As a trial attorney, probably not. I'm (laughs) loving this. I'm just getting warmed up. Yes. Yeah. So just to follow up really quickly, because I know that Bob helps people, sells them. Yeah, we we look at exit issues. Yeah, exit issues. And so you kind of do something similar when it comes to Colorado law firms. So when they're looking at dissolving, merging, kind of the issues that face law firms, how do you help? Why is your expertise a little bit different? It's sort of become a hobby. The first law firm I was with dissolved a number of years ago. And being a former managing partner, I was selected as the liquidating agent, the person responsible for dissolving the law firm. Several years later, I was called by another large law firm in Denver that was in the process of deciding whether it should wind up business. And I ended up being retained to dissolve that law firm as well. So I've actually been responsible for the dissolution of the two largest law firm failures in in Colorado history. I don't know if that's good or bad. There's nothing like waking up one morning and realizing that you have all of the corporate authority vested in you of a failed 60-year-old law firm. But law firms are not like other businesses. We operate under a number of restrictions. First of all, the relationship with the lawyers to the clients is as a fiduciary. And so there is a lot of trust and repose there. We operate under very stringent ethical guidelines. And so it's not like you can just say, okay, we manufacture widgets closing up on Tuesday. We're all walking away. We're taking all of our inventory and we're throwing it away. We can't. We have to protect our clients. We have to protect our client files. We have to make sure that clients are not harmed by the law firm dissolving. You have to make sure that there's appropriate transitions. You have to review all the files. Uh, You have to make sure that, for instance, if I have a will that's at my law firm, that the law firm in the process of dissolution doesn't throw away my will. It's a very different sort of dissolution. It involves, like I said, it involves business aspects. It involves legal ethics. It involves an awful lot of common sense, a lot of counseling, because the worker bees, the attorneys want to move on to their next project. They don't care about what's coming into their own law firm. They're not getting paid from them anymore, probably. You want to try to avoid a bunch of lawsuits. I am pleased that in both situations, there were no lawsuits among former owners or partners of the firm. No one got sued by clients because of the dissolution. You look at some of the national failures, and it should have been just the opposite. There's been an awful lot of litigation. So it's a it's an odd hobby, if you will, that that I've developed. It's an interesting practice area. Not a ton of lawyers do this out here. You are honestly one of the only ones I've come across. I see a lot of business disillusion, but law firm disillusion, especially in Colorado, doesn't happen as much as you would think. But I do think two factors, because of two factors, we're going to see more of this in the next, I would say, I would predict five years. Are you seeing more of this because of the outside influences of larger national law firms are really gobbling up the smaller 
mid-sized law firms in Denver? Yes and no. What I'm seeing right now is exactly what you've described, which is a lot of national law firms or regional law firms coming into Denver and taking over, acquiring existing Mm -hmm. firms. That's not a dissolution situation. That's an acquisition. And so all of the responsibilities transfer to the national law firm. But along with that, yes, I think you will see a number of failures where partners just decide they don't want to practice together anymore. They have different business philosophies. Could be a whole bunch of different reasons. It's also just the economics. Part of the reason you're seeing a lot of national law firms coming to Colorado is that there are a lot of economic benefits to running the business of a law firm by being very large. You can centralize an awful lot of administrative responsibilities and functions. There's a lot of advantages to being like me, a sole practitioner or a very small firm. There's a lot of efficiency and flexibility that's there. But in between, there were a lot of inefficiencies. And so a number of those firms, I agree with you. Yeah. The number of the medium-sized firms are, are subject to failure. Another aspect of this that I'm seeing is they call it the silver tsunami, where we're seeing a lot right. of lawyers, traditionally lawyers, doctors, kind of professionals in these areas, they'll die at their desk. But what we're seeing now, people retiring. And we've got over 40,000 active lawyers here in Colorado. And my guess is is we're really going to start to see a shift in some of the larger names that we've known for years. I think they're going to start to close or merge without anybody to transition the practice to is what I'm suggesting. I tend to agree. Historically, and this is a bit oversimplified, but lawyers are not the best at transitioning their business. As lawyers, how many hours do you work? What kind of dollars do you bring in is is part of how you are assessed internally in a law firm. Also, what is your client base? Do you control, as the term would be, X amount of business? Are you responsible for keeping others in the law firm busy? If you leave, will those clients follow you? And because of that, lawyers historically keep their client relationships very close to the vest. And many are guilty of not doing a particularly good job of mentoring or bringing in that next generation because that next generation might actually get along better with the next generation of leadership in the client. And then that next generation has the ability to walk out the door. It's true of a lot of businesses, certainly true of wealth management, where you represent grandpa and grandma who founded the business. And those are your friends, but their kids start or grandkids take over the business. You want to manage their money as well. You need to develop that relationship with the next generation. And lawyers have struggled with that Mm -hmm. a lot. And so one of the things that happens is their failure because, again, maybe that if I'm the senior partner at a law firm, maybe I decide to leave or, or I retire, as you suggest. Now that client is up for grabs. That client decides to leave. Well, if that client represented a significant percentage revenue from the law firm, panic sets in. Several lawyers go, wait a minute, our profits, I can see, aren't going to be as great in the next year. So I'm going to jump ship. And then three or four of the profitable lawyers jump ship. The rest say, oh my God, we can't make it. And I've seen that a couple of times. And so you're correct. I agree with you. I think there will be a number of of law firm dissolutions. I think just in my experience, what I've seen is that sometimes lawyers can kind of get their blinders on and realize that there is more to practicing law, especially when you own your law firm. There's a business side of it and developing that pipeline, like you're saying, that prevents a disillusion, prevents kind of these things. Um, I see a need to hire. Sometimes lawyers won't hire other lawyers. <laughs> you know, I've seen a real disconnect with that. But I think that not all 
business lawyers are created equally. And I think I see a definite need just with the different types of law firms I work with. You can't know everything. Hiring a lawyer that actually has experience in HR and Colorado employment law can have big payout in the long run. I'm really glad you shared a lot of this stuff. I think it's some go-to advice. I agree with what you said. And I've always, one of the things I'm really pleased about my practice is that among my client base are quite a few lawyers and law firms. And it's always nice when you say the feeling of, gosh, my professional colleagues trust me with their employment advice, or you get a call from someone that says, judge so-and-so just referred you. My favorite referral of all time actually is from a court reporter who deals with lawyers all the time. And I got a call from her brother and said, you know, my sister said, I need to hire you. It was, it was, a, nice, it was a real compliment. <laughs> I, yeah. I appreciated it. Well, I sincerely appreciate your candor and, and sharing your knowledge. My pleasure. We'll try to do this again and drill down. Fun to talk, so, David. Thank you. Yeah, Thanks, thank Miranda. you. You bet.